Hello, and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast, the podcast for those current and former service members who are looking to go above and beyond. I'm your host, Brock Briggs, and today I'm speaking with Michael Pakoda. Mike is former aviation at the squadron level and now works for Navair doing additive manufacturing. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. Uh, We talk about how proximity to the mission impacts the lives of people in a unit. We compare and contrast sea duty and shore duty and how being more involved with the mission day to day tends to strip away a lot of the unnecessary actions of units with more time than duties. We've all been there. Mike gives me a unique take on why the Navy has such a hard time promoting junior people to speak up. He has a drastic proposed solution that involves getting rid of the chief's mess entirely. And lastly, we talk about Michael's area of expertise additive manufacturing. I love talking with people who have such an excitement for their field and are passionate to share it with others. He talks through how 3D printing is playing out in today's military and what needs to happen to see wide-scale adoption. This was a fun conversation. Enjoy learning from Michael Pakoda. Well, there were two things I need to find out before we can like officially start this because that's just like the the most gripping issues to me right now. Uh, one, you pushed off our interview by a day for a date, so by default you have to let me know like how that went. Okay. Can... Uh, do you want to answer that or do you want the number two? Because no, the number two. Let's number two. Let me know what we're getting into. We start with one easy ask. What's number two? There's... Number two, uh, I listened to another podcast that you did and you like openly on air degraded breakfast rice, which I take major offense with. Like breakfast rice is like literally a staple now in my house outside of the Navy. I've been out for four (laughs) years. Like I make breakfast rice all the time. So we're going to, you know, pick, pick your poison. Which one do you want to start with? Oh, we'll go, we'll go this and then I'll have a rebuttal. One, okay. the, the date was fantastic. Um, we went out to DC, just had a great time. Uh, man, it, that's been going good. So it's been, it's been about almost two years now, like a year and a half and some change since like I've been in that scene and it's tough, man. You know, I haven't dated in over 10 years. I'm 32 now and the world has fucking changed. Women oh, have man. changed. Everything is when I uh when I was in the squadron, we called these things poof nights. And what we would do is you had to bring somebody to the bar. We'll be like Friday's a poof night, and you had to bring somebody to the bar that you met on plenty of fish. And if you showed up with if you didn't show up with anybody, you had to buy the first two rounds. So oh wow, that's brilliant. (laughs) So we would like you're getting to like Thursday, and they're like, yo, I don't, I'm going, I'm going, you know, all out. I don't care. I'm bringing somebody. Yeah, uh, it was just well. I mean, two great. two rounds for the whole uh, you know, the whole shop. That's that's going to be expensive. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're, I, we're not cheap dates. I'm literally just imagining like I see these videos now where they like bring a bunch of like your exes into one room and like like I imagine that just once all of the the dates find out that they are also there for the first time, like that that's got to be like a a humorous interaction. There was a couple times where you're like, hey, this is, you know, this is Tiffany. She's great. Let's get these drinks. And you go and they just 
our friend David just wouldn't like talk to any, talk to her, and you just see her walk out after a while. She's like, "I got what happened." And we'll, go uh, to, we'll go to number two. Uh, your fucking breakfast rice, by the way, is oh, just awful. That just like that just touches my heart, like in a a, a good way. What uh, what did you think about Chuck Wagon on the ships? Did did you ever have Chuck Wagon? I'm not. Uh, I might know it by a different name. I'm not sure what that is. It was all all the ships I was on. It was always called Chuck Wagon. It was kind of like beans and meat and like just mush uh and we put it on toast i absolutely love okay. chuck wagon and that is the one recipe that i was like on the boat I'm like this is delicious and now i've looked up recipes and i make my own chuck wagon that's the okay. only thing that has survived everything else is like no those little hamsters uh you know oh. on blue nope out the window baked Man. chicken ruined for me and yeah breakfast rice uh, yeah, breakfast rice still remains like one of the best inventions. Like, I don't know if the, the ships are the one that put it together, but it just, um, especially like little soy sauce in the morning, man, that'll just like sriracha on everything, of course. Like, um, yeah, I th- think that I've like kind of seared off like half of my taste buds just from like hot sauce so much a f- couple of years on the boat. So, uh, I want to hear a little bit about your Navy time. How did it feel to be the inferior avionics AT strand? Let, let's go with a third hitter here. Um, you were you were an ATO uh, on the squadron level starting out. I was, I was. Um, so you know, I believe you said you were an AE, right? I was an ATI. Oh, oh, even fucking worse. Oh, I'm sorry. So you know, the light of day is really done uh, wonders for your complexion. Yeah, it really has stayed in my coat for about four years. Um, yep. <laughs> I would I'd walk out to a FOD walk down on deployment and we're like in our, our huge thermals and like the, our glasses are all fogged up from the, uh, oh man, it was uh, a very hate. The, the AC was nice. The, the AC is nice. I will say I did, my last tour was eye level um, and I learned very quickly it wasn't for me. <laughs> so. Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I, I joined in 08, uh, ATO side, um, right after, um, I know that the, the hurricane hit Pensacola before that, because I had to do, um, all my elect- basic electronic school still in Chicago, um, with a lot of the shipboard staff. Cause they're like, Oh, Hey, the schoolhouse is still, you know, it's being rebuilt. So I spent a few months in Chicago on that side and then, uh, transferred to, um, uh, Pensacola, did uh, basic schooling out there. Uh, ironically, uh, that was almost the end of my career. I uh, I got arrested one night in Pensacola. No one ever believes that, but it's true. Do you oh, remember? Were you is in- it story time? Like we oh, might. This is what we're here for, baby. Right? Lay, lay it on me. Lay it on story me. Story time. Didn't uh, did you ever wear the um, uh, what were those called? The utilities? No. So we had the the utilities, and you had a black jacket. So I was wearing a black jacket when I got my photo taken. Um, in Chicago. So my ID picture, they, they put the year right up on the back, uh, right where your photo is. So when I was wearing the black jacket, you couldn't see my birth year. Um, so okay. I was DDing for some friends out in Pensacola and it, we're going into- Were you over 21 at the time? Oh, uh, no, no. no. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's where this whole thing goes wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, Pensacola- DDing, I'm like, okay, we're we're into a good drinking story here. Like this ought to be good. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's it. I really wasn't doing anything. I really was DDing. 
Uh, but we're going into the bar and everything like that. And we've, we're on like our third bar for the, for the evening. And uh, they got a bouncer. The bouncer stops me and says, hey, what's your birth year and whatever like that. And me and my brain, I'm not thinking about the drinking aspects. I'm thinking like, oh, I bet they're kicking out younger kids. Um, they don't want anybody in here. So I was like, oh, you know, I, I'm very conscious of the fact you can't read the birth year. So I upped it by like two years. I'm like, oh, you know, born in 87, all this stuff like that. I definitely born in 89. Uh, and I looked, I looked a lot older uh, anyway. So he looks at the ID. He's like, did you, what'd you do to this? Did you alter it? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, no. Um, do you have any forms of ID on you? He was like, nope, that's it. It's my base ID. And then he, I wasn't looking. He like waves somebody and a police officer rolls over. And I'm like, oh shit. So my friends go in. I'm like, hey, just go. Uh, don't be associated with me. I'm fine. Uh, they go inside. The cop comes over. The the bouncer explains the story. And once again, I'm very oblivious to this whole drinking thing about people sneaking into bars about drinking. I'm just like, man, I'm not going to get to go in. I'll wait outside for my buddies. I'll go somewhere else. It'll be fine. And then so the, the cop ends up frisking me because uh, I had told the bouncer I didn't have another form of ID. He finds my wallet, which had my real birth year, and it goes downhill from there. So oh, he's, boy. he's thinking, he's like, hey, you you altered your ID, blah, blah, blah. And I tried telling him the truth. He wasn't having it. So handcuffed my butt. I went into the paddy wagon, big van. It had a bench seat in the back and the handcuffs were just like tied to it. You're just like swerving all around. It sucked. And then I oh, get man. all the way to the quarter deck and, uh, you know, the master chief isn't there. The cop drops me off. So I had to sit on the quarter deck all night long until the next morning. Uh, the, and the cop reported, he said, Hey, he's altered his ID. He was trying to get in. Um, and we think he was trying to underage drink. And so I had to wait till the next morning, had to talk to the master chief when he came in first thing, explained everything, said, I'm sorry. I wasn't even thinking about the whole drinking and 21 thing. I really just wanted to get in and be with my friends so that I was DD, but you can breathalyze me or do anything like that. Uh, he was totally cool. He was like, okay, this is, I'll write you a, I'll write you a note for class today. Go ahead and get your ID retaken without the jacket. Thank you. And uh, get back to class. So that was, that was my very first and like last run in with doing anything like that. I was for, until I was 21, I was very, very cautious with all my Navy friends. I was like, nope, never, never again. Yeah. That could have gone much worse. Um, hearing older Navy stories and, and like, that's not even that long ago like that. Um, I joined in 2014, but that still feels like, uh, you know, a light year away. But hearing some of like older stories, it always feels like they, like it has gotten stricter over time. I, I don't know that that is a fact, but uh, it feels like that. Oh, 100%. You know, I did eight to, eight to 18. Um, and I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. I think, you know, the, the borderline of when you say older, um, and it has no relation, it has no relation to this in a negative way. But the biggest event in my time in service was when they revoked Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, so, you know, everyone beforehand, it was really comfortable. Everybody knew it didn't really matter, but it, it was like a big momentous occasion and everything after that, the Navy became very comfortable. Like, well, we, you know, we revoked don't ask until we're doing away with our major policies. Let's just keep going. So it was just change after change after change. You know, I think I went through five or six like uniform changes. Um, just all of this stuff, it, some of them for the good, some of them for the better, uh, or some, some of them for the better and some of them for the worse. Um, I think that, you know, 
But living through that time and being in the service during that time, just seeing so many people trying to adapt to change, interpret the intentions of different rules, what's going on. Uh, the Navy just slowly started to become this entity of rule after regulation after rule. So it, you got away from, um, you know, we, we originally had that honor, courage and commitment thing. And honor was like a, a decent piece. They were counting on you being a good person. They were counting on you having morals and representing the uniform. And slowly it became, hey, we're going to have an instruction for everything. And uh, if you you did this and it was covered by this instruction, shame on you, um, mm -hmm. just created this uh, huge tidal wave of policies and it, it, it difficult. I, I really liked my year, my first couple of years in, in the service. Um, you know, there was everybody knew I was on night check. Everybody knew in the fridge there was blue Gatorade and the blue Gatorade had vodka. So if anybody was having a bad night, you could just sit there. And if you sip from like the blue Gatorade, people would leave you alone. They would give you a minute. Um, you know, there was hazing, which I was just talking about that yesterday was kind of fun. I was one of the last people to really get hazed, um, you know, get the, the pass down log. Everybody in the shop got to hit, spank me with it on my birthday. And then I got the day off. Just different things like that. There was a, a new, a different level of bonding um, and working together that really, as, as I transitioned up into the other commands, uh, was lost. It, it became a, a, a different Navy. So I don't take any offense when you say like older stories. Cause I, I totally recognize that today's Navy, even though it, you know, 10 years ago, it's completely changed in many ways for the better in many ways for the better. Um, and in many ways, it's still adapting to, to the, the new world, how to implement change, and to skirt that line between having to have a regulation and just being a decent human being. Yeah, it sounds like that. Uh, the don't ask, don't tell might have been like the first domino to fall in like this era of, you know, a, a lot of rapid change at once. And it's funny because we we talk about the DOD as this kind of like turtle organization that moves very, very slow to like take on new things. But I feel like every once in a while, there's going to be like a burst of speed where like all of a sudden it's like, we need to make a bunch of changes like yesterday. And, and that sounds like one of those things. Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm third generation myself. So my grandfather was Navy. Um, I have another grandfather that was Army. Uh, my father was Navy. I was Navy. My little brother so we, we do span some decades between the family. Um, so talking about what things were like, what things are like, what's been going on, uh, it's, it's fascinating. And there, there's so many similarities. Like you can relate to somebody, anybody that's ever been in the military. Um, that's what's really cool about being a veteran. There's always that, uh, that level of understanding of what you've been through, what it was like. Um, but there's also just this complete different title difference in, in the daily operations expectations. I mean, my father could openly smoke weed. Uh, you know, he was in during Vietnam. Uh, and he was just like, yeah, that was part of the routine. It's part of what we did. You you went out, you smoked weed. They had strip clubs. He asked me uh, when I first got to PAX, he was like, is, is the strip club still there? Is the, you know, the enlisted club? I was like, dad, the only time I ever saw an enlisted club was in Pensacola. All the other bases, I have never seen an enlisted club. For the most part, you don't see O clubs. Every, everybody, as you said, is going to have this flow of the, their time in service. And it, gets worse it gets better but uh as a whole it, it does it, the, for as slow as it moves day in and day out business there has been drastic changes um just in the last 10 years could you talk about 
I'm interested to kind of like dig into some aviation chat with you. You got to play on both sides of the fence in terms of, and for anybody who's listening, who's I guess unfamiliar, we've got organizational level and then intermediate level. O level is more uh, like on the actual aircraft and at the squadron level. And then intermediate is kind of up a level, but non-touching the aircraft, I guess. They're working on individual components. Um, so you got to kind of play on both sides of the the fence there. It sounds like eye level was not really your thing. Maybe just talk high level about both and compare and contrast a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, O level, you you're you're mission forward. Every day when you're when you're there, it's like, hey, we have a mission to meet, we've got this, we've got flight hours. There's purpose behind everything that you do. Um, and it's direct there and it's in front of you. We've got mission. Um, you know, you, when you, when you deploy, you know, like, um, I've been on a frigate cruiser, destroyer, uh, frigate cruiser, destroyer and carrier with the O level. Um, we go out for a few months, you're doing, uh, you know, counter drug ops, you're doing, um, uh, formulations, all this stuff. And then you go to the intermediate level maintenance and you don't see the day in and day out mission. They always tell you it's there, but you're like, okay, these, uh, these six components came in the shop today. Somebody fire them up. Let's uh, see how they're working. You don't have that uh, daily operational pace that you do with the O level reason for you going fast. Um, so it's a, it's a much slower pace. I was also also here at PAX um, several years ago. You used to have uh, in the intermediate levels, AIMDs. Uh, my understanding is when they transferred over from AIMD concept to um, what you now have as FRCs, it changed how funding worked. When you had AM, I, AIMD, for instance, like here on this base, um, all of the, the, the squadrons on that base contributed to the funding, the execution of the I level. So you were always supporting the local flight line. So you would get different op tempo requirements um, and you had more interaction and everything you did there was for a reason. Now, as I've been told, uh, when things change, they swapped over to FRC concept. And so now in, uh, entities like Pax River here became a detachment of like Oceana. So when it came to like funding, most of the funding goes to Oceana. They take care of the prime first, and then you have all these other debts. But yeah, so you, you went to more of this uh, dis you're disconnected from the people you're actually supporting. And, uh, like when I was in, in, in PACS, you wouldn't, you didn't have funding to send people to training, uh, because a lot of your training budget here at PACS went to sending the commanding officer every time he's got a visit. So you're pulling funds from like your training funds that are already pretty tight to get your, um, commanding officer to come out to sites and do rotations. So it just, created this huge struggle of you're trying to get resources and funding from a larger entity that doesn't even see you hardly ever, barely understands and just sees you on, on a report. Um, so it, it drastically changed. And here at the I level, what I experienced, you know, we would have a component. We knew it was broke. It, traditionally in O level, you go into your computer, you go, okay, this component's broke. I need a new one, put on order, remove this one. It's done. And here we would know something was broke. Um, we'd have to print everything out, print proof, write, uh, we'd have to write a document, like a couple paragraphs on summary of why it's broke, what it did, what we need to do. The signature would have to line up exactly halfway through if you folded it. 
And if the signature was off, they would reject it. So you would spend a day putting this report together for one component, giving it to production control, routing it up your chain of command. It goes through several different people to make sure it's written well enough. And then they would just reject it. So you would lose days of work to administrative tasks just because the, the workflow wasn't there um, to mm -hmm. justify, hey, we need to go fast. It's like, no, we need to do things, quote unquote, right, people. It needs to be right. It needs to be perfect. Let's reject this again. It's like, man, I just need the part to fix this. So you have all of these parts on the shelf. You're, you're waiting for chits to go through. Sometimes they get lost. It's, it's a nightmare. And in the old level, that's all out the window. It's just aircraft down, get aircraft up. We'll get you the parts. You need, you need to get uh, back in the grind and get these aircraft up. And I, I enjoyed that a lot more, um, supporting the direct flight line daily operations, really being in there, in, in, in the weeds with it. Mm -hmm. There's still a drastic difference even at the, the eye level. So I did one tour at FRC Oceana and then went to AIMD on the carrier. And that was completely different because at FRC, you're so focused on all of the things that you're just saying. We, there wasn't really that report thing, but there still is just this unnecessary attention to things that don't matter. It's like the, there's almost like a, a time that needs to be filled to like, oh, we don't have anything else to focus on. So let's just like really get into the weeds on these things that don't really matter. The second we go and, and deploy and we're working on gear, it's just like, it was almost more of, I think what you're, you're describing at the squadron level where we're working on gear and we go down to production control and we say, Hey, we have this problem. And it's just like, it's done versus like at FRC, you go talk to production control and there's like some other, there's like a machinist mate that's trying to tell me why, like how I should troubleshoot my parts. And I'm like, no, like you're not even in this right. Like, what are you talking about? So I, I get what you're saying. Um, I, I feel that. How do you think the closeness to the mission impacts, I guess, the individuals that are being involved? Like, do you, do you have any thoughts about why or why not that's a good thing? So that's a good question. Really done. Um, I really think that being there in the mission increases uh, your want to be there, your drive and your motivation every day. You can justify moving faster. You can justify like, hey, I'm gonna, not going to worry about these things. I'm, I've got a mission. You, you, can, you have a unique focus. It's there in front of you. Um, so there's a lot of good with that. Uh, it drives you every day. You get a lot accomplished. You're very productive. Um, but there's a couple things that go amiss. Those little things that you're like, okay, there's a mission over here. I'm not going to worry about like, like training the eye level. We had many different computers. Um, so you would send people and do your OJTs, your, your training. You had time to sit and develop your personnel in the O level, like those yearly trainings, you would stack everybody's cat cards up. Uh, and one person, if they were like LLD, or if they were just sitting in the office for a certain reason anyway, you would plug in everybody's cat cards and take care of their, their training, get the certs out. Okay, they're done, they're done, they're done, they're done, they're done. The, the op tempo is to avoid doing the things that, quote, don't matter um, to push the mission. But what that does in a little bit is to the, the sailors, uh, that's a tough grind. You're always putting mission first above yourself. You're not going to 
to medical because you're like, hey, I got a mission. I I don't need this medical appointment. I'm going to be okay. Um, you just you get in this mindset to never take care of yourself, but to take care of the aircraft, the mission, um, and it, as you promote up the people under you, so that they can do those tasks. Um, but that leads to burnout. It is so so common to push for months on end and then to just be burnt out, and then. It leads to, you know, in your, your personal life gets deteriorated. It, everyone goes through divorces. Um, you just get into this thing of nothing matters but the mission. And so the rest of your life, the rest of your, sometimes your career, um, you won't pull focus on studying for the tests. You're putting focus on getting your aircraft up. Um, it, so it's, it's, it's a catch-22. It's good for certain things, and it's bad for a lot of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talking to some like senior people at squadrons, like you, you look at them and like have a conversation and it kind of almost feels like they just like came up for air, like, you know, after years of just like, boom, boom, boom. And that's maybe a little bit the Navy in general, but um, yeah, that intense focus, like if you're not careful, the downtime is like not a something that's like encouraged or even really thought about to any degree. No, it's always... It's always the opt You know, there's something with that. Um, I uh, uh, This was my second command. I checked in in E3 and left in E6. So I got to see the whole the whole breadth of what it's like going from the bottom and then being in a leadership role. Um, and that that also, that, that quick jump um, really, for me, put a, I got to see what it would take and not, not having to be like, okay, well, you know, being an E5 seemed like it was better, but that was at this command, being an E4 was great. Um, and then being an E6 is terrible. It was like, no, this is in one command. I see how things work, things were going on. And that is when, um, you know, at the O level, I made my decision that I was getting out. Um, you know, we mentioned this before. I got out at 11 years. Um, so many people are, are, have always said, like, you were over the hump. You were on your, your decline. You're ready to go. But I was, it would have been at nine, I think nine or year nine or 10, where I absolutely made up my mind. I was like, I'm going to do a shore duty tour. I'm going to prepare myself because I focused on the mission for so long. Um, I need to get my finances straight. I need to get my family straight. Um, I'm going to spend my last shore duty tour and get ready for transition. So I jumped into eye level with that mindset and it really got uh, reinforced while I, while I was there. Um, I told you I got I got involved with the the innovation team. So very rare for for an E6. I got within a few months of being there, I got my first um, uh, evaluation, and I got a check in MP. So usually they 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 always say like at E6 level you check into a command. Your first evaluation is going to be a, a P, and then they want to see they want to see progression for your for you to the make progression, the progression, <laughs> the dirty P word. They want to see progression, whatever that means. So I, I had a check in MP and they started to like, Hey, you know, we need to um, start getting in room, start doing ready. And I was like, Hey, I, I don't want any part of this. We're in the middle of like Oh, three training. I was like, this is great. I'm going to support, I'm going to do everything, but I'm getting out. And as soon as I started like really um, pushing that I'm not here to promote, I have no intention of putting on chief or E seven. Um, I just want to take care of myself and get out of the Navy. It really changed the perspective of um, my interactions with various the middle leadership in our command. The senior level was very, very um, helpful with that. They understood completely, um, very supportive. 
but the middle, like the, the E7 to E9, uh, became very difficult to work with. Um, as you were seen as, you know, an administrative burden, you were just there, you didn't care. And it's like, no, I still cared very much. So during that time, I had no problem speaking up. You know, we were dealing with these asbestos issues, known issues um, that were kind of getting swept under the rug because they'd been reported for so long and no one had ever done anything. So I was like, no, I'll, I'll step forward. I will say my piece. I have no problem taking pictures, sending in messages. Um, and I did so. Uh, I would also call out when like they were, in my opinion, abusing like junior sailors. Uh, there was once when you, you had a civilian staff part of this FRC and uh, the lead civilian was in charge of taking care of the building. And he called in some some folks to repaint a particular door and they came back and said, no, we can't do it. It's lead based paint. Um, and so he came down and uh, directed two of my junior sailors to go strip the paint. Um, I happened to be there and see when they said it's lead-based paint, we won't do the work. I stepped away um, and I came back, you know, a day or two later and saw that they were trying, they were getting my sailors and they were starting to sand it. They had no PPE. They weren't ever told that it was lead-based paint. So they were just sanding it down like they would anything. I stopped them right there and said, no, this is, this is not going to fly. You don't, in my opinion, endanger sailors and tell them and leave facts out just because you, know, you can tell them what to do and they'll, they'll do it without asking questions. Um, so I was very, very vocal in my last few years about um, trying to do the right thing, trying to protect folks and uh, make sure they weren't being um, in what I think of as being abused just because they are a, uh, a, a military workforce. Um, and that, that that did make me some friends at the end very well. So, but I trained I, uh, out and did much better for it. I imagine that it wouldn't. Nah. What, what do you think that it would take to inspire all of the enlisted force to think and speak up like that and why don't they oh wow man we should have uh we should have deep dove some of these questions and had them ready and put some thought towards them um because i mean there's no career risk yeah and and so here's what i think the biggest problem in the navy i've spent uh the last few years since i worked out working very closely with the marines um and I, I still do work with sailors and Marines, but I work with more, more Marines now than I, I did in a long time. And I've seen a lot of benefit over there. I see things, how they operate a lot differently, um, even morale, but we won't get into that. Um, and the biggest difference, and this is, you got to take this from the perspective of somebody who spent, I spent most of my career as an E6 um, than any E1, E2, E3s. I, I made it at my six-year mark. And like I said, I got out 11 and some change. Um our biggest problem is how we promote to the E7 level. Um, you know, to make chief, you have to be accepted. They, they, it's very much ran, uh, for lack of a better term, like a mafia. So you have to do what they say, uh, otherwise you won't make it. Um, you have to do all this. So you at the E6 level is where you're supposed to look out for your junior sailors. You're supposed to be taking care of them. You're the senior man in that work center in that environment. Um, but if you're trying to promote and you're trying to make it to E7, you have to spend the majority of your time not thinking about the people under you, but about pleasing the people over you so that you will get the evaluation, so that you will participate and get their letters of recommendation so that you can get into the cool club. Um, so you're you're very discouraged at for the people who should be speaking up for you and should be doing the right thing that they don't want to either because they're going to get a black eye. They're not going to promote. Um, so I think... If, if I were to try to change anything tomorrow, um, and it's, it's very controversial uh, to people who are E7 and above, I would 
get rid of that, what they call the mess concept. Um, the Navy isn't structured to do that. They could not make that change very quickly. But I see in the Marines that they're there and it's just E7 and then you promote it's just E8. So they're not worried about the entire senior enlisted group wherever they're at coming down on them and, you know, just rolling their name in the mud and making sure they don't promote. They can have an opinion. They can speak up and say, hey, I'm going to say this is wrong uh, because they're, they're just there isn't this unified mass floating above them, pushing them down and forcing them to make these decisions. You know, you would you'd get a, like a chief to come down and be like, hey, we uh, so and so something happened on uh, your junior sailor, um, Joe, on his next um, promotion or whatever, when he's up for evaluation, I need you to write him up as a P because, or we need you to write him up as a P because we want to see so-and-so and so-and-so and so be, be an MP. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't get the chance to fight for them. I, I can't fight you because I'm trying to please you, um, but this is my top worker. So I, I feel very strongly that he should be evaluated appropriately, but you're coming down and you already have it all racked and stacked for the whole command of who you think and who the mess thinks is going to promote. Um, but that's that's what I would change tomorrow. I would change the promotion from E7, E8, E9, eliminate this mess culture, um, and really take out what in the innovation space, a lot of people call the frozen middle. We have such a huge mass in the frozen middle that uh, behind the scenes act as one, which has a lot of benefit to it. Um, don't get me wrong, there are huge advantages to the mess concept as well. I get why it has evolved and become what it has. But um, if you want to make significant change and ensure that everybody junior can and has a voice and isn't afraid to speak up uh, without, uh, you know, uh, ruining their career and uh, dampening the lives of their family members and all that stuff like that, then we, we need to eliminate as a Navy that uh, the ability for that to happen. And yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that's something that anyone's capable of doing anytime soon. I don't think that I've ever heard anybody say that before, but that's, as you're saying that, I'm like, wow, that, that makes so much sense. It, you kind of feel like you're, you're going up against your parents kind of, and like, you feel like they have to have like a united front. Like when somebody comes in for, uh, before they go up for NJP or whatever, they go to the mess and they stand there and they just get shredded by the, the, the group or whatever. And then, you're right. you, you know, now they've got like, it, it, it kind of is like making its way down the ranks too, because there's like the first class petty officers association, which is, it's just the mess, but it's a different rank. And it's like this weird group of people that are just, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That's, I, I didn't stay in long enough to really kind of fully kind of experience that. So, but I, I understand where you're coming from. So you said you made first in six and then decided to get out at nine. So that would have left you in that position of trying to please the people above you and also take care of the people below you for three years. Yep. Like what, I mean, maybe, do you have anything else that kind of like really stung you about it during that time? Or Well, once again, when in the O level, I didn't notice at the time because it was so mission forward. And ironically, our, our shop, we probably only had, you know, 10 individuals and six of us were first class. Um, so we always played this game, like who was getting fired today. It was a joke in the production control. Something bad would happen in the AT shop. Like, okay, LPO, they're out. Put the next C6 in. So like every other day we were rotating, rotating through who's LPO today. Um, mm -hmm. And we just, we had, we had the O level, we had a lot of fun and there really wasn't a first class mess when I was there, believe it or not. Um we were, it just, everything is the mission. Everything's forward. 
So although, yes, every now and then you'd run into like, okay, the Chiefs don't want me to do this. Even in the O level, Chiefs were more encouraged to do what was right because they were doing their task. So they would do that. The, the real place where I noticed such a huge disadvantage to it was in, in the I level. Um, so it, to say that, but my last, uh, I don't know, year, two years, whatever, in O level as an E6, I thought it was wonderful. I didn't really notice. I was able to take care of the people under me. We were very mission forward. Um, and it really wasn't until I was at the I level where you have those different, you have the first class mess, you have the uh, chief's mess, you're participating in things like uh, CPO 365, which was a whole program to groom you how to be a chief. So once a week, you're spending all these hours and logging all these books and um, getting signatures. You would have to go to an E7 or above and say, hey, my book, I need to talk to somebody and have them sign off on this task. Can you do it for me? Um, it was awful. And, you know, you were talking earlier about, um, uh, God, you said one thing in particular. I can't remember what it was. Um, you know, just having to ask for permission. Oh, uh, the, the whole United Front. I can't tell you how many times um, in the eye level I was sitting there trying to stand up for what I thought was right. And uh, I had two different chiefs that were that were great in that position. They come down, they pull me aside um, and be like, look, what, what you're doing is right for this work center and for this person. Um, however, you know, we as, as a mess, we're going to make this decision and we're we're telling you this is how things are going to be. So they would be like, look, I see your perspective. I believe you're right as well, um, but we can't do anything about it. This is what we have to do. Um, so, yeah, that that happened. And I think it's very much recognized um that that's the way that that it operates is that the final kicker for you wanting to get out or oh, yeah. is there another reason no that was that was the definite nail in the coffin once i knew that i was not going to be doing anything to um to advance i told you i got that check-in mp i made it very in the, the the master chief at the time he was like okay that's it uh, you're you're going to have peas the rest of the time you're here so i knew i would never have a chance to promote but he was like look if, if I give you an MP or even if I gave you an EP, I would be taking that away from somebody else who wants to stay in and wants to promote. So it, it's, it's very political at that level, what decisions are made, even who's in what positions. Um, so for my benefit, the, the last few months, once my replacement came in, um, so I'd say like the last year I was there, I was just a filler body. I would go across and I would spend a little time in airspeed for a few months um then that would fill up and get back on track i would go to amsu so it actually did good for me getting out um because i i learned so much about how the different um programs work so many different things that i never knew about like amsu part in doc uh when they come parts when they come into the system when they come into the command what happens to them how they're logged that as i'm now transitioned on the uh on the night air side and i've been trying to support the fleet and find out ways that we can do things differently using 3D printing and additive manufacturing. I'm able to say, hey, look, you know, we, um, it's not just about making parts. You can go to and finding them on aircraft. You can go to your local ICRA list. You can do all these different things and see, hey, how many parts are outstanding? How many parts have we just turned away reporting that we don't have capability on? Um, and also educating the commands as we roll in, like, hey, we're rolling in a new piece of equipment. Um, it's going to change the capabilities that you have here. You have to adjust appropriately so that these parts come into your system. Um, so I, I actually am very, very thankful for that, that I was in that position to rotate through so many places in the command, learn so many different things about how it all worked. Cause, uh, 
it, it's really uh, benefited me these, these last uh, few years. It's interesting that you say that because when I, you talked about like being really any rank, like second class, first class, whatever, going to those other weird departments, airspeed, uh, QA is usually like looked upon highly as like a good thing, but uh, ICRL, all these other weird things, hazmat, that's another one, are all like such tertiary programs that it's almost looked down upon. But if you think about the value that you're actually bringing to the command and certainly on like a, from a civilian perspective, like those are actually like very high value things to know and understand. It is. It's incredible. And you're, it's not just like an almost, it is, it is completely frowned upon. Um, you know, when you're at like E6 ranking boards and everything like that, they tell you like, oh, this person is in this position. They're in the tool room. They're in this. They're They're like, you know exactly who is there and why they're there. Um, but yeah, and it's, it's absolutely crazy. Cause if you think about something, um, it was joked about my entire O-level career, but airspeed. They'd always be like, oh, let's tape off the stapler on the desk. We airspeeded it like the eye level. Ha, ha, ha. Um, you get into airspeed and you see, man, in every command, at least at the eye levels, you have a group that's dedicated towards identifying problems, um, finding solutions, and making things better, process improvement. It's incredible. And that honestly, that's what I found more of a passion for than anything else while I was there. Um, and so, yeah, you those folks, because you're in such a production-driven environment, it's frowned upon to be there. You normally in commands, you don't end up with good people in those positions. So they're not really doing the best they could for that command. So you, you just get into these places where um, everything's been the same for 10 years. They don't change. They never really make any change and make things better. They just exist. And it's like, well, you could have put some quality people in this program that you're required to put staff in anyway. And they would have helped you identify your pro- your biggest problems and break through them. And instead, they sit here and just casually work on projects and try to stay busy. It's it's crazy. But yeah, for me, getting out and with the people I support and what I do now, that was so, so wonderful. And I, I look back on that. Uh, I would I would not change a thing. Airspeed is one of those ones, too, that like, I mean people joke about it in the Navy is like going to airspeed is like a negative thing. But I mean, nobody's going to be laughing at you when you have like your green belt certification on the outside. And that actually means something Uh, like, yeah. I have green. I was a green instructor. Um, So, you know, I've been working with uh, various other groups um, throughout the dawn and we're like, Hey, how can we identify problems? Where's our head hurdles? Like guys, I got this. I've, I've got three books on my desk. Ever since I got out, I've really fallen in love with that, the whole concept of Lean Six Sigma, all, all those things associated with airspeed. And I, I put some emphasis on it. And um, it's like, yeah, hey, there's this structure we can use. Um, maybe we could do a, a black level project or a black belt level project for these things. So it's, it, it, I, I agree with you. It is absolutely shocking what is downplayed when you're there is actually either big dollar figures or right into jobs. You know, mm-hmm. it's probably a lot easier um, getting into, you have a, a a bigger breadth of places you can get into with like your green, your belt, than you could like as an avionics tech uh, for right. like low end positions. There's tons of avionics techs. There aren't that many green and black belts. And those, the jobs, there's so many jobs out there, not even related to aviation or the Navy. Um, that are looking for those those very critical assets, like in automotive, 
or any kind of manufacturing industry, they, they, they need those principles. Mm -hmm. You said that you, looking back on your time, you wouldn't have changed getting out at 10 or 11 years. What, what has given you the confidence that you know now that that was the right decision? Because I, this is like a, a hill I'm, I'm, regularly fighting people on and like coming to like want to die on because uh my spouse is preparing to get out at the 10-year mark and there's just this oh you're you're halfway there halfway to what like halfway to making two grand a month what do you I, nothing yeah your health care great like fantastic like what else you know what's half, sad is halfway to spending another 10 years doing something that you maybe don't even like and being miserable and just being belittled. Um, you know, with your time and my time in service, your time in service, you know this, um, uh, you're not really treated like a human being, even by your peers, by anybody above you. Um, you're just a body there with a task to do. Nobody cares if you have medical, nobody cares if something's wrong with you. Uh, heaven forbid you have anything like um, you're dealing with anything at home, you're in your family and personal reason. There is nobody that cares about you because um, nobody's incentivized to there. It's all about the mission, not being a true leader, not being there for your folks. It's numbers. Um, so mm. to me, that was the biggest part of getting out. It took some transition. Um, and my boss will tell you this. I still am notorious about this. I'll message him and be like, Hey, just so you know, Tuesday, I'm going to be at an appointment. He's like, Mike, I don't care. He's <laughs> like, get your work done. You've always gotten your work done. He's like, just take care of your business. You're a human being now. Um, right. And, and that, ha that has been the best part of me, but you know, the other thing that's changed is what kept people in at 20, why people said you always had to retire was for the retirement. So you would get out and you could collect a check the day you got out. That's no longer the case. You know, um, I really don't understand people who are in the blended system that they have now. Um, which is as I've researched it a little bit before I got out, just like a 401k, um, so if you're in it for the retirement and you're saying, Hey, I've got to make it to 20 to retire, you still have to get out. You, you're not going to collect a check the next day. Um, you, you might get medical and disability, but guess what? You can get the same things. If you get out at your four, six, eight, ten. 10, like you can still get the medical, you can still get the disability, both the money, the coverage, the insurance. I, I truly don't understand why people do 20. Cause if you compared the two, um, since it's just a contributory thing, it's how much money you put in. In the military, you don't make any money. You don't make any money compared to what you would in the civilian world doing almost anything. And if you go like for like, like what an avionics tech would make on the outside, you're going to be making double and triple. So if you're just contributing a percentage of your paycheck and you're doing it for retirement, it makes no sense to take the lowest paying job to do so. Get, take the highest paying job, get out of the service, be treated like a human being, make more money. You'll be able to contribute more of your money to your retirement and you'll collect at the same point. So mm -hmm. uh, these days, eh, with if I hadn't, uh, if I was like um, being an advisor to anybody, I would say, do your four years, get your college benefits, um, get out, uh, make sure you claim all your medical, anything that happened, because we all get hurt. It happens. Um, make sure you take advantage of that. And then get out, use your college benefits, get a higher paying job and contribute more to your retirement. You're going to be so much better off. Um, and when you come to retirement age, you're going to have more money to work with. So you'll be able to retire sooner.
Mm-hmm. That money argument, I, un- I, I understood why people said it. But now that I, <laughs> I like got out and went to school for finance and kind of was like looking back on some of the things and I was like doing some of the numbers and I was like, uh, there's a lot of people operating under the assumption that you don't have the capability to contribute more to a retirement at a higher paying job. Like that's the the reason to stay in. I There's absolutely a lot of people that should stay in. I, I think that I'm not here to like bash that in any way, shape or form, but just make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. And that's literally 100% of why this podcast exists is to expose people to careers and people so that you don't need to stay in if you don't want to and like help you prepare and do good things when you get out. Now, and getting back to there's there's one piece there. I, I went on a tangent, but you were asking about why I'm so confident with what I'm doing. Um, it's it's really simple with why I'm confident. You know, I joined uh, people join the military for various reasons. I joined really did join for uh, patriotism. I, I'm all about supporting, you know, our country uh, and service. I've always been in service, uh, doing things, volunteer work with different organizations. I have always been about dedicating my time to helping the most people that I can. Um, and in getting out, if I stayed in, I would just have been doing another job. I'd be another body. In getting out, I've been able to support the entirety of naval aviation, all the sailors, all my brothers and sisters that serve. I have been able to do more good for them outside the service than I ever could have affected inside the service. And that, to me, is where I get the satisfaction every day knowing that I did the right thing. I'm helping more people than I ever could. Um, I'm being a resource. I'm able to do so much more. I'm able to be their advocates. You know, there's been a lot of times I've gotten friends and they're like, hey, I've got this problem. And it's like, oh, I know somebody. Here's somebody I've met. Uh, let me connect you over here. And maybe it's a work-related issue. You can't get that component. It's like, look, I work with the program office. I'll connect you. Um, that's happened so many times where being in the service, you're just lost. You're like, I, I don't know. I'm in the grind. I know I have a problem, but I have nobody here to help. I absolutely love being able to be that kind of a resource and being able to advocate and make change and, and help. I'm I'm all about that. And that's where I know I did the right thing. I know that I can help those people better. I can help the my country better than I ever did and ever could while I was in. You were talking about this a little bit earlier, but you said that you got plugged in with a couple teams that are on the base, like an innovation team. And some of that helped set you up for getting a job at Navair after the service. Can you talk about like what led to, you said you had an interest in 3D printing. Was that something that you were doing outside of the Navy anyway, just tinkering? Yeah. So, you know, it all started with Netflix, uh, which is weird. I watched this Netflix special one day. I was sitting at home and it was called 3D Print the Legend. Uh, It was about the startup of 3D printing, uh, not really the startup, it, it talks a little bit about it, but the, it was most mainly focused on that transition from um, when you had patents and then all of us became aware of what 3D printing was. The patents expired and you got these little desktop machines. That went out. So I saw it, I was like, man, I can make something. I grew up very crafty. I was always using duct tape to fix things. I was always um, building, that, that's just who I was as a kid. Um, so I saw this capability and I was like, man, you know, you can conceptually think of something and with very little work, design it, see it there, and then hold it a few hours later. I think this is incredible. And it's only a couple hundred dollars. So I bought one. It was made of wooden zip ties. I stayed up through the night, the day I got it, built the whole thing, 
um, and then got to town. So I started seeing little things like I saw some caps, covers, plugs, little tooling things at work, door stops. I'd be like, you know what, guys, I'm going to make it this weekend. I would make it um, and tons of stuff around the house. Um, so I just saw I saw I got really involved. Um, and then, yeah, when I transitioned up here to PAX, I told you about the uh, the design challenge they had. They're like, oh, hey, we, we heard you, you're involved in the innovation jam. Uh, you got a few things. Take it, pitch it to the admiral. And I did it one. That, that's history. It, w- it went out there. It was great. But while I was there, we, it was during a convention called Sea Air Space, um, which is very big here in the D.C. region for all the services. Um, most of the senior leadership attends. It is a fantastic event. Um, last year was the first time in many years that I, I could not attend because I was at another conference. But um, while I was there, I met up with different individuals that introduced me to a breadth of other groups that exist in this, what we call the innovation ecosystem. So there are tons of different groups, especially in the DC region, that are kind of like underground, uh, trying to make change and help. Uh, you know, you got defense, uh, defense, uh, deaf, uh, defense entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs forum. I stayed involved with them from the day I was introduced all the way till even now. I help when I can. I have a little less time now, but I was very involved for a long time and I still try to be. Um, and then all the branches have their own. There's other Naval X uh, even groups. Like I, I'm very passionate about one. I love uh, Naval Constellation, which is the super secret underground. Um, but yeah, getting introduced to so many people uh, and being able to help uh, when people had little problems, just I, I love that. I love the defense uh, ecosystem. I love the innovation ecosystem. Um, it's sad that from from what I've seen, all, all there's a lot of change every few years as funding gets reprioritized to different groups. Everyone's trying to survive, but you always have the core people in this area that see that change can happen and are dedicating their time and uh, you know lives towards improving the services as they can very similarly in those ecosystems. So I'm very passionate about it and I love everything that they stand for. Just as much as you want to see it, like on in the civilian world, we need people in the service that are doers. Like there's way too many people that just want to sit on the side and throw bombs about how, how shitty this is or how bad that is or whatever. It's like, yeah, you may not have like just unlimited latitude, but like if you care about something and you want to make it better, like nobody's stopping you. Like go in there, raise a ruckus and, you know, kind of make some waves doing mm-hmm. what you uh, what you want to do. Will you kind of recount the story, I guess, of what happened with this cap and like r- pitching that to the admiral in this competition? Yeah, yeah. And I guess challenge coin sitting right over there. Um, so when I got to debt packs, the eye, the eye level, the cursed eye level, um, within a few of a week or two, they were like, okay, we see what kind of person you are. You should know that we have an innovation team here. Um, there was a great effort amongst uh FRCMA to create um little teams at every single group, um, not as restricted as airspeed that are bogged down by process and procedure but just there to be like, hey, let's see a problem. Let's make it better. Um, unfortunately, that died towards the end of my time there. Um, but in the beginning, they, those were very powerful works for good. They met, you took like, sometimes you broke it up to junior and senior level. So you'd have a group for junior sailors and uh, senior sailors, and they would speak right to the uh, the command uh, commanding officer in some cases and say, hey, we identified we got this problem. We kind of have a solution or we have something new we want to do. And so you took out that frozen middle, all the people that are encouraged to say no. Um, so if you had senior leadership buy-in, they would make it happen. You know, um, 
a couple of the projects we got done, we looked into like using AR and VR for um, uh, repair capability. We obviously did very well with the 3D printing um, and, and advocating for that. Let's see what else. So oh, God, I should have come with a pre-list. But anyway, that though getting involved with the innovation team uh, became really the, the, the driving passion that I had in the eye level as I was getting out. Um, but through that, within a few, uh, few months of being there, there at the Sear Space Convention, there was a group called uh, Project Athena, which I love. Um, but Project Athena is where anybody in the Navy or the Marine Corps can pitch an idea to somebody in a senior leadership position, um, and they would hear the idea. So, you know, I went up there with this very small 3D printed cat, maybe four inches by like two inches. Um, and the, the, the senior person there was at the time, uh, Rear Admiral Cullum. And so there was people from the Naval Academy and they were pitching using uh, drones on ships in contested environments to get back and have all the sailors learn how to do Morse code so that we can communicate. Uh, they had ideas, really big ideas on new shipboard systems, way of doing things. And then I'm here like, hey, I've got this little cap here. It would save this maintenance hours and I made it for 25 cents. But if we implement it, um, you know, we'll save so many man hours every year. It's, it's a great idea. Um, and like I said, that cap actually won the entire event because I was able to show exactly like, look, it costs this much. It costs nothing. Um, we would use it every single day. It would keep FOD out of this area, which we always have to spend two hours uh, to disassemble and clean when we install this gear. When it won the competition, there was somebody in, in the audience and she stood up and she said, hi, my name's Liz McMichael. I work here for Navair in an innovation team, and we're going to make this thing happen. Um, so I got introduced to Liz. Liz, we transitioned, as I said before, the, the innovation team concept from sailors and uh, um, uh, the Navair engineers. It became the additive manufacturing IPT, the team that we are today. Um, it morphed into that. And now we oversee additive manufacturing across the entire fleet for naval aviation. Um, so yeah, the, the, the cap, we, within a few weeks, we, we got to what's called the program office, the people who oversee uh, the aircraft that I did it for. We showed them the concept, what it would take to do it. Um, and they helped implement it and make it, make it a thing. And that, that really set the way for, for what we do with every day for all of our projects. That's how we do business. We take the low end ideas and the high level ideas we, we've created a structure to find those champions, those chief engineers in the program offices, and we've created a, a structure for how you get solutions out there. I like that with the position that I have and what I do, that we've reinvented it in a different way. We've taken that concept of the Project Athena, and it's what we do every day in these work centers now. We've stood up work centers where they have additive and 3D printing capabilities. They have people trained. They're trained on how to identify problems, come up with solutions. Um, it's also why I'm passionate about this. It really, the implementation of additive manufacturing in our um, environment uh, rides on the back of everything I've learned through all these years with the innovation ecosystem, uh, process improvement, and it's giving an avenue to people who are stuck in the daily grind to make things better for themselves, for their command, for their peers in a constructive environment that is still within their command. They can still do it as a daily job. Um, I love it, Ned. I have no idea how this all happened, but it's great. <laughs> um, will you explain what additive manufacturing is? Is that just another fancy word for 3D printing? Is that? Woo, okay, buckle up, baby. This is where we go to town. Yeah, man. So um, 
you know, there's a lot of terms for, for all, of, all of that we do. Additive manufacturing is a term that incorporates it all. Um, if any process that is of an additive nature, meaning you're stacking stuff on top of each other in a, in a conformed manner, in a particular controlled area, is additive manufacturing. Uh, versus what tr subtractive manufacturing um, is what's done for almost every single part uh, and everything that is it. You know, you have, we'll say you have a block of wood, you want to turn it into a sign, you either chip away at it or you put it in a CNC machine and it brings it down to the shape of the item you want. That's traditional or subtractive manufacturing. Additive is building it up. Subtracting is subtracting or taking away from. Um, so 3D printing, what's normally referred to as 3D printing is uh, usually covering like the, what we call the desktop polymer systems. Um, you have seven different processes uh, listed by an organizational body called ASTM. Um, like these, these are the seven different categories that additive manufacturing is. One of them is called material extrusion or fused filament fabrication. Um, and that is what most people think of as 3D printing. It's a smaller subsect of a much larger thing. Um, but 3D printing can be much more than that. You have systems that work with resin, liquid resin. You have systems... Uh, that work with things like a uh, fishing line. What would you think of? We do metals, powders, laser sintering. Uh, you can do anything. They have really cool systems in the last few years where they take essentially sawdust and they they bind the sawdust with like glues and adhesives into a, an additive manufacturing made item. So you can make geometry you can never make. And it's like a wood-like item. Um, you could almost any, any material, you've got medical going on where you're able to 3D print uh, things like ears, noses. I just saw where they did like an, an eye for a, a rat. I didn't dig too far into what that looked like. Um, but you can you can take almost any substance, almost any substance and do something additively with it. And it's just, it's really just changing the way that we make things. Um, but this the concept isn't new. It's been around. Uh, I've got the patent poster behind me, but it's dark. I, I want to say since like the 80s. I'll say the 80s. Don't quote me. Um, but only recently, because the original patent started to expire, you're getting so many machines that are out there. They're making so many changes. It's all around us. Most of the schools have them. Most of the libraries. COVID hit. People were manufacturing uh, face mask shields, medical devices from their home and supplying it to uh, these people that couldn't get parts. It just it took off. And so, uh, yeah, 3D printing is huge. It's with us. It's part of our, our daily life. I will not tell you how many machines I have in this home. Um, but I have a lot. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is incredible that you can think of something. Um, and you know, when I was like a kid or like, you're trying to think how I want to build this now you can digitally model it very easily. Like you're using Microsoft paint. Sometimes you can 3d scan it. I have a 3d scanning app on my phone, so you can just scan something in front of you, import it, print it or import it and then design around it. Like if I wanted to make a bottle stopper for this bottle. I could scan it within like an, a minute on my phone, import it into the software, design geometry that would fit into it. I could see what I'm working with and then print it. It's just, it's incredible how complex you can make things now from home very cheaply. They have printers that are even sub $100. Um, they're not that great, but for under $100, you can have a machine that you can make anything. It's got some feedstock on it. You design it, you print it, and it's it's there in front of you within a couple hours. It's just it's mind blowing, mind blowing.
you started to touch on like the cost of what these is. Can you maybe just, cause I know nothing about 3D printers. So forgive my ignorance, but so you've got printers that probably range from a hundred to, I don't even want to guess what the up, upper bound is, but as high up as you want to go, I don't think there is an upper bound, you know, they've okay. got, they've got additive uh, capabilities that are, that are manufacturing buildings. You're doing entire buildings of concrete. Now um, all of our, um, Space exploration that's coming up on all the moon and Mars, all of that is going is additive based. They're going to use regolith and, uh, you know, like rocks and dirt that are already there and make essentially. I've seen a lot of things where they're going to make shells. So the shell of a building. And then when the human population comes there, they're going to put in balloons inside of those shells. And that's going to be the environment. Um, so additive is, I, I don't think it has an upper limit of how much it can cost. Um, mm -hmm. but the lower limit, yeah, sub a hundred dollars. The cheapest I've ever seen a printer is like 75 bucks. Um, and they're, they're usable. It's like anything else. If you buy a cheap car, you're going to do a lot of maintenance on it. It's going to take a lot of your time. If you buy a cheap printer, you're going to do a lot of maintenance. It's going to be down a lot. So the more, the more money you pay, the, uh, the better, the components, the better, the QA that goes into it, uh, the less that you're going to have to actually do. So it's just, how much money are you willing to pay for your time? What's your time worth? And then what, is it, what does it cost for like materials? Obviously, you've kind of touched on that there's several different types of printers and using different types of materials to print stuff. I always kind of like that's where I got lost thinking about 3D printing before I'm imagining just like a tube of some sort of material or like some kind of like wire fed thing. 20 bucks. Like most of what we call 3D printing, as I said, is, is what we were on the cheaper side, material extrusion, FFF, um, that you can buy a roll of that online for 20 bucks. And it could be in any color. It, there's different materials, nylon, ABS. So you can choose a, a material that fits your use case. Do you want it to be flexible? Do you want it to be rigid? Do you need it to be a certain color? Does it need to be transparent? Does it need to be glow in the dark? Does it have carbon fiber uh, infused in it? They have ones that have like coffee in them. So it smells, it has aromatics. Um, I mentioned wood grain ones so that you can sand and finish them a little bit more and you can apply stain. There's so many different um, materials that you have for these it's very simple machines. Um, and they can cost $20 uh, upwards. You know, uh, you could spend a little bit more, 30, 40, 50, and get a better quality product that you're not gonna have um, problems with. Or you could spend 20 and just, you know, hope and pray. And if it, that role isn't good, get another one. Uh, I'm imagining that these don't have the same issue that a lot of uh, our traditional printers have, where you only print in black and white, but if you get low on CN, uh, you're going to need to buy a new cartridge. Yep. Uh, no, uh, most printers do not. You, uh, for the most part, you're dealing with one colors or rainbow. You know, they have, they have multiple colors. Some of the machines can do tool swapping. So you can have three or four different colors. Um, but no, for the most part, uh, with most of what, at least I do at home, it's just one color. You load it up. Maybe you have um, a, a different type of material for like a support structure because you can't just like apply material on air. There has to be something supporting it underneath, usually like a scaffolding. So you can do like a dissolvable filament, um, a dissolvable material for that scaffolding and then build on top of that. Um, and then you just put it like in a bucket of water and it dissolves away and you're good to go. And it's a lot easier than picking plastic away. Um, there's just, there's so much different options out there because we've seen, um, additive really take on 
uh, a whole new light. There's so much, many different materials. They have ones with copper uh, infused that say uh, that they, they serve medical purposes. You can actually 3D print on the cheap $100 printers that we've talked about. You could get a $100 roll and you could print metal. Um, so it's going to be like a loose metal uh, with some uh, polymer into it. You can send it away and they're going to um, put it into different ovens and baking and heating processes, and you will get a metal object back. So you can 3D print metal from home from a $100 printer today. Uh, it exists. Wow. That's really incredible. What a time to be alive. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned some of the interesting applications like over you're helping with aviation and like 3D printing materials for that. Uh, talked about them building buildings with it for space application. You also touched on the fact that 3D printing has been around for the 80s. And from my perspective, I following like financial markets because that's what I'm into. I like every so many years, there's this weird like craze that comes up where everybody thinks that like 3D printers are like this next 3D printing company. Like, no, this is the time like we're finally going to have like mass adoption of 3D printers, but it just like, and, and we had one like a couple of years ago, it still isn't here. Like you can buy one for a hundred dollars online, but like, I still don't know of one person that has one of these. So what is the, and I mean, maybe I'm hanging out with the well, wrong like that's, people. So. Well, maybe it's not the wrong people. There's people that their children might have them. As I mentioned before, all of the schools, almost any public library these days has them. Um, they're out there. You just, you don't, you, maybe you don't see it, you don't recognize it, or you don't even think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. What do you think is, I, I guess, and maybe this is, again, I mentioned this earlier, I'm very ignorant of a lot of things that I'm trying to not be. What is preventing this from being just this crazy wide scale, like worldwide revolution? Like the, the ability to make something in your home, like the, at this scale that you're talking about, that sounds very similar to things that we're talking about, like with the industrial revolution, we've got like coal and like steam power. This is obviously a huge deal, but I, I, I just don't see it. I, so it, it is in certain, it is in certain places, you know, it's like, um, uh, when I bought a Tacoma, uh, I never saw Tacomas on the road. Uh, and then all of a sudden I bought one and now I see them, or I, then I saw them everywhere. Um, now I bought my, I didn't see Teslas for a long time. Uh, I got my Tesla last year and now all I do is see Teslas on the road. So when you're, when you in the 3d printing community, and now that you've heard about it, now, you know, a little bit more about it, I think you're going to see a lot more. Um, mm -hmm. it's just, it's one of those things that you don't know about it till you know about it. And it's, you know, it's everywhere. All the car industry is, is creating components for it. Um, Hasbro has a, a series that they released this year where they will take your head and put it on an action figure like G.I. Joe, Power Rangers. That's 3D printed. Um, you've heard of Invisalign? Yeah. Invisalign is one of the, the biggest industries that started, uh, that really adopted and told everyone they were using 3D printing. All of, all of a lot of your medical, your dental stuff is 3D printed because they can easily scan your, uh, your mouth and where your teeth are at upload the model onto a 3D printer, print it, and then, you know, using other technology, uh, create those inserts, put plastic on top of it and do your teeth. Uh, 3D printing is around more than you know. It's all around you. Um, you just don't know that you're seeing it. Some, some components in certain phones are 3D printed. 
um, aircraft, everything around you. I mentioned vehicles, um, tractors. Um, who am I thinking of? Um, it, it, it's everywhere. It, it is completely changing uh, the industry. But as a common user, you don't see it because you're used to seeing the product. You see another BMW on the road. You see this. You see that. You're not identifying that. Look, that's a 3D printed part. So in the manufacturing communities, everybody knows what it is. It is revolutionizing everything. Um, even folks like uh, Johnson & Johnson, how they, uh, they're 3D printing some of the molds that you do for the bottles that you have in every all of your houses. All of the R&D design work is usually 3D printed these days. Um, all the major brands, if you take a major brand of anything in your home that you think about, um, betting man is that it's, they're going to be involved in additive in some way. And you can easily Google it most of the time and be like, yep, they do that. Mm -hmm. At the, the Navy level or just kind of military level in general, what is preventing every single avionic shop or any shop working it with any type of materials from just having one of these inside there. And then just when you need a new part, you just print it right there on the spot. Three things. Uh, and this is a great, this is, I love the Marines. Money, policy, and understanding. So this is still very, very new. You know, we mentioned it's been around, it's probably earlier. I'm saying eighties. I wish I had my light on because I could see it. That, that poster behind me is the original patent for 3d printing. All of the the seven technologies that I mentioned that incorporate AM, I have their patents in my house as artwork. So uh, this is what I do. I kind of like it. Um, but so let's let's talk about policy right now. You know, when you when you are working in the eye level spaces, everything is about policy. Well, you're you're fixing something. What what publication did you use to sign it off? Your um, what did you do your work in? There beforehand, there was never a policy that allowed you to use 3D printing. Uh, we actually just put uh, a phrase in the NAMP, like within the last couple of weeks. So now there is even mention in the NAMP, um, the Naval Aviation Maintenance Program, that we do all maintenance against in aviation. There's mention of additive. So now we have instructions. We have things that say you can 3D print it. And then you have a direction by my team and uh, different po other policies in place that it points to and says, yeah, you can 3D print stuff. And here's how you do it. Follow these rules. Do it here. Um, so that covers the policy aspect. The, a lot of the other branches are the same way. Um, most of the other branches haven't taken, um, none of them, I can tell you, has taken it the way that the Navy has, and it's due to the Marine Corps. The Navy, uh, the Commodore of the Marine Corps a few years ago said, hey, I want additive to happen. Uh, I authorize all commanding officers across the Marine Corps that they are allowed to buy 3D printers. And guess what? The Syscoms, the engineering community, you guys are going to figure out how to do that. So. That's what we're doing. So he created this great environment where now it additive is out there. Everyone's got it. We we had to figure out how to support it. And now we're doing it in a more structured manner. That, that had its downfalls. Um, you know, you couldn't get replacement filament. You couldn't order parts. You couldn't cut maps. But um, now you can. So we there's been a lot of lessons learned. But most of the other services, what they've done is they, they've created different, um, I'll say almost like schoolhouses, little engineering R&D hubs um where they put additive so it's still in the hands of engineers they're learning to do, work with it um they're figuring things out but we've implemented like another tool in the toolbox it's in every eye level uh it's in most of the depot levels we're telling everybody it's here here's what you do here's how you use it it's just another tool next year cnc machine your hammer um so we're we're paving the way for that to happen 
but you know, funding. You know, nothing in this world is done for free. I've seen so many different things done in the last 10 years um, for how to fund additive at a very high level. Um, and the money usually just doesn't get to where it needs to go. Um, so at a high level, they'll put money and they'll say it's targeted for additive and like the sustainment or these different things. But at the bottom, you don't have what's called a, a program office. You don't have a program office that uh, can feel that, can put together a plan that is funded each year to exist. So instead, the people that are pushing additive every year while they're trying to do it are trying to say, okay, my money runs out this year. What do I, who do I have to beg, borrow, and steal from to get the next year, to keep this going? So you're putting so much effort into trying to find a resource sponsor, trying to find a source of funding that you're not doing it as good as you can. You're not putting your effort and you're really not able to plan. You can't have a 10-year plan when you're only funded for the next six months, the next six months, and the next six months. So at some point in time, I think we're going to have some champion. There's going to be some admiral, some huge champion somewhere that's going to see this problem. They're going to hear from people um, in the trenches, you know, at, like at the SITSCOMs trying to do it. And they're going to connect the dots and be like, you know what you need? You need a program of record. We have to have this funding every year by Congress to make this real, to make this work and to make this um, into a solution and not just have these little wins for a few years that, hey, they did a couple of things. They had millions of dollars of ROI and then they disappeared. You have to take it seriously or it's always going to um, just hang on by, by, by a shoestring. What does the addition and wide-scale adoption of 3D printing, particularly in the military, what kind of impact does that have on pre-existing relationships and contracts with companies that make these components? Man, you're going deep. That's good. Um, you, you can tell that it's an area of, a lot of people think it's an area of contention. Um, a lot of people think that the OEMs uh, are afraid that we're not going to buy their products anymore, that we're going to make things in-house um, and not use them. And that's not the case. You know, we have um, really good relationships with the, all the major OEMs. And we're totally upfront with them all the time. Like, hey, we want to do this. We have this logistical problem. And nine times out of 10, they want to support it. They're also doing additive and 3D printing. So they want to feel that they want the use cases. Um, and they understand, like, you know, if, you, if you're missing this uh, pressure relief valve, that's not a good example, but you're missing this pressure relief valve um, to get under DOD contract to make you all of these that you need to support this aircraft for now and the next five years. It's going to take years of contractual work. It's going to take years of standing up uh, the staff to manufacture them, the production lines, the material, the certifications. It's going to take you years to get the thing that you need. But additive, you if there's an additive option, we can work with you and you can make that now in days, in weeks. You know, we had um, a really good example, and this has been publicized, so I don't worry about saying it. But there was an F-18 down on a carrier in Japan about two years back. They said, hey, we've got this problem. We think there's an additive solution. What can we do? We worked around the clock. Uh, several of us were there at night. You know, we did all our meals together. But within like 72 hours... We saw their problem. We came up with a solution. We worked with all the engineers on base to get it certified. And that aircraft left the deck in 72 hours. And we just emailed them a file on how to print it and how to put it together. 
And that's unheard of. You wouldn't see that from working with industry, putting contracts in place, getting a big OEM to uh, make something for you. Um, and the solution itself and material was a couple of cents. So it's, it's really revolutionizing that industry wants to work with us. I see a future where um, with different, like we're in a stand up. I hope that the military stands up different contractual language and contractual vehicles so that if we did want to print that valve and we didn't have the data, we can reach back to um, an aircraft manufacturer of some kind that owns it and say, hey, you've got the, the model for this. We want to print it. Let's buy it for, for a, a small run. So you don't even have to manufacture it. We'll manufacture it. Just we'll pay you for the rights. So I think that's the future we're all working towards so that we don't have to reverse engineer everything all the time, spending weeks and months to get things approved. We work directly with the OEMs. They allow us to print it. They give us the technical data. Um, well, they don't give it to us. They sell it to us. And we do a limited run to get mission complete, get it done. Um, and I believe that's something that's a, a priority at a very high level. It's been talked about. I haven't seen an implementation plan, but it's everyone's paving the way for how do we get from where we are today to get there. And it takes a lot of industry standards. It takes a lot of certification. Industry has to be able to make things the exact same way that we do. We all have to have trained personnel at the same level so that when we manufacture something here, it is exactly as they intended over there. Um, and we're getting there. It's just, we don't, as I mentioned before, I haven't seen people with enough funding trickle down to make that a real reality with a real roadmap. So the, you can't align anything to a roadmap that's not funded. You have all these great ideas and say, look where we could be in five years, look we'll be in 10 years. But if no one funds that shit, it will never happen. A year from now, you're going to say, yep, we can still do this. Hey, we can still do this in five years. Um, it's always going to be this imaginary goal that keeps moving until those action items are funded upon directly. So um, yeah, industry wants to work with us. We want to work with industry. We do. We have a lot of contractual vehicles like what's called a CRADA. Um, so there isn't really money going back and forth, but it's a way to share information with like major groups, major organizations that's legal in the DOD to do so. Um, so there's a lot of progress. Nobody is doing anything in a bubble. No one's doing anything contractually illegal. Um, everything is still in those tight boundaries. I would imagine from an OEM perspective, if you're a large defense contractor of some sort, you're that is probably very beneficial to you. And they probably will be able to kind of pull the DOD along. The DOD is not going to be the one to like run out there and charge ahead. But these guys, these large industry players have the opportunity to create the system. And I mean, from the business perspective, that's like a super asset light model for them. If they can make like enough to test a part license it to the DOD and say, offload all the manufacturing and say, that's your guys' problem now. And, you know, we'll come in and, you know, make sure all the quality checks are there, but that's, that's good for their business too. It's, it's the Netflix model, man. You know, Netflix, uh, back in the day, you, you email, you sent in a request and you got a CD, you know, you, it was all CDs, DVDs, you had a physical asset in front of you supplied by them. Um, mm -hmm. And now look where we're at. It's all digital. It's all virtual. They don't manufacture CD, DVD cases. They don't have to deal with the mailing, anything like that. So they've created this environment where they're supporting the infrastructure. They're getting the data in there. They own it. And then they're leasing to you the environment. 
and it costs them nothing. You know, they're not paying for your TV, your electrical bill. Um, I can't, I can't imagine OEMs not wanting to jump on this business model where they own the technical data that they lease to the military or outside the military for other people to manufacture it. And then I don't, it's not free money. Nothing's ever free money, but you've got reoccurring money that after its creation costs you nothing. It costs you the contractual, whatever, to keep the contracts open to allow that to happen. But that's minuscule compared to starting up an entire production line and uh, paying all of your staff and paying them benefits and wages, dealing with your own supply chains and materials. Instead, hey, I own the data. I'm going to let you make it. Go to town. Um, It's a no, it's really a no brainer to me. It's just all of these things got to come in place to allow the technology to do that. The OEM has to have trust in the system so that you can prove that you deleted their file after you did. They have to have trust and faith in that in a receipt that you only did it that number of times. Um, and there's some super crazy things coming into industry right now. Um, a friend of mine owns a company called Smart Parts, and they can dope the materials going into anything, in this case, additive, similar to how your dollar bill is, so that it's scannable. And let's say you had, a, a, God hopes not, you had an aircraft go down somewhere. It blew up into a million pieces. Well, in this case, we'll say the crew got out because that makes me feel better. So it's just an aircraft in pieces. You don't know what this thing is. You can scan it and be like, oh, it's this. It was created here by this. Um, just by scanning a very small part of something, you can identify it. Um, it's incredible. Um, so yeah, I, I, in that level of traceability, you've got faith in the system. Once you build a system that can support things like that, then you know you really have the true the 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 facts in place and um, uh, the faith in the system that when you say you've made one of these things you really only made one and you didn't make a hundred and you're not stiffing them um, for ninety nine. Mm-hmm. I was reading an article I think that either you shared on LinkedIn or or otherwise, but there was a um, a large. 3D printer of liquid metal going on to a carrier. Uh, it, it was in a Connex box that weighs 15,000 pounds. Like yeah, that so, is, that's crazy. So it's not liquid metal. Um, this is a known thing. Oh. Like you said, there's articles, it's, it's close. So uh, Xerox, who we all know usually makes uh, traditional 3D printing, released a printer that uses almost like a metal um, filament. So almost like um, a very thin uh, wire going into it. And in the process, it creates little droplets inside of the machine itself. So yeah, they they didn't put on a carrier. They put it on one of the um, LHDs, I believe. Um, I I know the name of it, but it's escaping me. So they put it on there as a test. That's the same machine that they have at the Naval Postgraduate School. Somebody saw it and wanted to make it happen. Now that what that's existed outside of a lot of the engineering community. It's cool. Don't get me wrong. It's cool that somebody said, "I want this. I want to make it happen. Let's put it on a ship. Let's move fast." Um, but you know, I don't have faith that very similar to, as I said, I've seen in the last 10 years with fielding printers to the fleet, putting a printer into an environment is not enough. You need the engineering community behind it, the logistics community behind it to repair it, to keep it up to date, to get it the material it needs to have the tech authority, uh, and the ability to do it, to have a database of parts they can make to establish the training to make it a real solution. It, it's much bigger than just putting another printer in another place, but it is really cool. Um, it's really cool how fast this has moved, and now you've got a metal capability on ship. I, I don't know of another metal capability on a naval vessel before. 
Um, you've obviously had a ton of 3D printers, but they're mostly polymers. Um, I could be mistaken, but to my knowledge, it was the first, which in itself is also cool. One of my last couple of questions for you here is who is hurt or what are the downsides of this wave of 3D printing that you're talking about? Oh, man. Okay. So normally in my environment, who is hurt? Who is hurt is the people that own the traditional manufacturer or the traditional processes that we use. So the people that say, hey, a part can only do this. I can only get it through contract. I This is all I know how to do. Those people who are not forward thinking and willing to change are who is hurt. Um, but to everybody else, there, there's not a lot of um, ramification. There is a scenario where literally somebody could be hurt down the line if they just 3D print something that they think is going to work like a, a wrench. They think it's going to work this way. It's just a wrench after all. And then it breaks and it gets in your eyes or does little stuff. You're like, oh, it's not a wrench. Oh, dear. Um, there's still a very early understanding of how additive components will behave. Uh, that layering method we talked about, how they bond. You can't just put it into a, a CAD or a design software right now like you can with traditional manufacturing. I can CAD a model right now and say, I'm going to make this out of titanium. And I can put it under loads and stresses. And within a certain degree of accuracy, the, the digital model will tell you what it will experience. Because you're bonding layers, we really don't have enough data in any systems at all um, to be able to tell you how it will behave. So there's always chances. You still have to do test couponing, break it over and over again to see what the tolerances are. So there's a potential that people could make things that get people hurt. However, when, you, when you're not just putting a 3D printer out there and saying go, when you're actually dealing with uh, the engineering community that does all of this research, they field machines in a very small window. This machine in this software with this material controlled by these processes, it's much better and you get an understanding and you can make things safely. But when everything is just somewhere, there's nobody behind it to talk to, there's no engineering, there's no research. Um, people can get hurt. It's, it's, it's a fact. Um, and that's why we don't just need another printer in the fleet or anywhere. We need, um, as an organization, to take it on and say, we're doing this. We're starting with this in a controlled environment. We're going to expand out. And we're, this is how we're going to do it. Because that is sustainable. That is um, everything that we've learned in the last 10 years with putting new technology in the fleet. This is how you do it. Um, and hopefully one day somebody catches on to that and is able to fund it in such a way that it really becomes sustainable, not just for a couple of years, but as a full program moving forward. And that's when we're going to see some change, man. You know, when when we're not chasing our tails or anybody in additive in the DOD isn't just chasing their tails every couple of years for funding, when you can make a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan and be executing to it, we're going to see some incredible things. I know it. Uh, I've seen some of it. The last couple of years, people have been on what's called overhead, where they they exist um, and they're not afraid of aligning to a, a fund. We've made some incredible advances just with that. Um, but yeah, I can't say it enough. I really hope, and maybe it's through this podcast. Maybe through somebody in this podcast, we'll see this, hear this, and be able to do something about it. But until that happens, we're going to see little advances, little wins that keep us going until eventually that day comes and we really start moving. 
you strike me as the person who uh, this seems to be a very large part of your life. And I'm guessing that you could make some recommendations to people who are interested places for further study, reading websites, uh, email subscriptions, like anything that people could go to learn more about additive and the space generally. God, absolutely. Where to begin? Where to begin? <laughs> um, so there's a wonderful group called America Makes, founded by the Obama administration. And America Makes is the United uh, States hub for additive manufacturing knowledge and work. The DOD members can join for free. A lot of people don't know that. Um, I did back when I was in. You can get involved in little ways. As always, you can get the start like I did. You can buy a 3D printer and learn from there. I mentioned before, you can go to public libraries. You can search 3D printing news. Um, there's three different organizations that I follow that put out news daily and weekly. Um, you can always follow my LinkedIn. I love my fucking LinkedIn. I just, I find things and post it. Um, anyone can always contact me at any time. Um, there's schoolhouses attached to it. Penn State has an entire master's degree program with it. The best courses I have been to, and I tried to do them all. I've kind of used my GI Bill to not really um, pursue like, getting my degree, but to find all of these little additive courses and take them. I've been through Penn State, several at MIT, ASTM, ASME. I find it, I go to it. But MIT by far has two of the best courses in the industry for additive. Um, depending on uh, different people and their transition, the first time I went to one of those MIT courses was in person um, at the campus and the state of Maryland paid for it. Um, so they have various programs when you're transitioning out of the military that people can help you. Maryland had a program um, and you could use up to, I think it was like $5,000. And so, yeah, I mean, I went to MIT for a, a week and a half, uh, got hands-on knowledge, got embedded in it 24-7, got that level of um, just wow factor. Um, they also bought me a suit to attend, which was cool. I got like a couple hundred dollars to put towards a suit. So I really encourage anybody who's interested in additive to research additive manufacturing, 3D printing, put it in social media, it's everywhere, um, put it in your Google search history, and then start looking at books. There's several different books that are out there. It is really everywhere once you start looking. You will be bombarded by information. Um, the other thing I recommend, if, if you have a means of attending it, there's an annual conference called AMUG, Additive Manufacturers Users Group. It isn't your typical conference. Like a normal conference, you think... People are going to be selling things. They don't allow people to sell things. It is all about users. Their, their theme is for users, by users. Um, this year, I'm volunteering with them in, in one of their committees to help uh, progress uh, the DOD inside of this. But AMUG is uh, uh, the greatest knowledge that you will get in this industry. You will be there immersed with everybody. All the NASA's there, GE, Boeing, industry as a whole. Everybody's there saying, hey, I'm using 3D printing and additive to do this. Let me teach you what I'm doing and how. Um, so if you have if you have an interest, that's great. I'm also working with a, a program called DoD Scalebridge right now. Um, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with that program? Yeah, yeah. It's phenomenal. So for those who maybe are listening that don't know, the last six months of anybody's service, up to six months of anybody's service while they're in uniform, you can uh, ask to partic participate in the DoD Scalebridge program. And they will allow you to work as like an unpaid industry intern outside of the military. Um, so you will learn how to do those jobs uh, so that when you do transition out, you're ready. You're already in the environment. You've been doing it. You have skills, marketable skills, um, and hopefully it just transitions right into a job. 
Um, so I'm working with DoD SkillBridge program right now and one of our major OEMs. I'm giving them uh, the OEM our information for what is the skill set that we're training to. When somebody comes out of the service as a 3D printing or additive technician, what do they know? And why that's important is then industry can create that as a standard acceptance for like, hey, our operators, we're accepting this, which is exactly what the military is putting out. So you're not going to see people that exit the service that I, I was a 3D printing tech for 10, 20 years, even two years, and I can't get a job. No, you, it'll be transferable. You'll be able to write a resume to ex your exact skill set, get a job in industry. Um, and I hope that once we get the first couple into the SkillBridge program, we'll be able to work with America Makes and some of the great people over there and really create a standard for what an operator, is, a basic operator is, um, an advanced operator, and it'll exactly match up with the training curriculum that it, we're putting out um, for sailors and everything's going to line up. Because, you know, if you're a uh, an avionics tech in, uh, in the DOD and you go try to be an avionics tech for Lockheed or Boeing or anybody else, it's the same language. It communicates. They have jobs at those positions. You can do that. Additive isn't there yet. Um, there are no industry standards. There are no baselines. Um, so SkillBridge is the way right now. I have access to working within that program and the people necessary to do that. And after that, we're only going to advance. And, and hopefully this is what it all comes down to is not just creating a workforce that suits us in the DOD where they can 3D print stuff when we need it, but a workforce with transferable skills that can go in industry and get jobs. Their skills apply. Um, and they're not just another veteran out there trying to think, what can I do? I don't have marketable skills. I can never make it out um, in, in outside of the military. It's It's got to be holistic. It's got to be much bigger than that. Um, and that's another reason why I love what I do. I'm able to do all that stuff. Is there anything else that you think that every active duty or veteran member ought to hear? Uh, I, more than every, every veteran, I think every active duty member, especially those that are in senior positions needs to know um, and hear that we need to support people getting out of the service. Um, it was the scare, even though I was working with the team that I knew I was, I thought I was going to get a job with. I thought I had everything lined up that last year was this, I'll be honest with you, the scariest time in my life uh, with all the stuff that I've done, even being forward deployed, no matter what I've done, the fear was in transition. You're going from years of a environment, you know, and understood you, some people have only been an adult in that situation. You know, they've been in since they're 18. Now they're getting out in their late thirties, maybe. Um, and this is all they've ever known. They, um, we need to do a better job in supporting that in giving people time, letting them go to medical, let them take care of their things, not push them to do the job in, in, in work every day and keep pushing them to keep producing, let them go take their appointments, let them train, give them every, give them every capability to succeed. Cause all you're doing is holding, holding people back. Um, you know, that those are the folks I've lost two friends. I'm going to be quite honest with you. Um, as they exited the service that they committed suicide within a few years, you know, they, um, and for the same reasons, they didn't know how to get jobs. They didn't know how to market themselves. They felt like they weren't being, um, you know, the, the man of the household and supporting their families. Um, and unfortunately, even recently I've been to a command that I won't mention. I was talking about the skill bridge program. I look, this is what we're doing. It's great. And they went, no. We hate the skill bridge program. We lose bodies that way. We don't get manning. We will never participate. And they were very strong about it. 
And that is the wrong thing to do. You can't just think in the moment about the, the mission. It can't always be about the mission. Um, at some point, you have to put the people first and you have to realize that there is a life outside the military and that these people deserve to have every advantage transitioning into it because we as a group and as a team have the most to lose. It's it's very easy for somebody that's not in the DOD. You know, if you're working at, uh, you know, you're, you're a salesman, you're, you're selling cars for you to just work somewhere else and get another job. You quit, you're out. But in the military, you're getting out. It's, it's a complete change of lifestyle. You and your family have never known anything about that. Um, we need to do better and we, we, we have to do better. And I, I unfortunately am not, in, am not seeing it. I'm seeing many programs go underutilized um, simply because the leadership um, in the command and in the unit is only putting the mission first and they don't see that the mission is the people um, and that they won't, they're not going to be successful otherwise. I appreciate you sharing that, Michael. Thank you so much. 